This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today's episode features Polly Sampson and David Gilmore, a wife and husband team who have been collaborating for more than 25 years. Their most recent collaboration centers on Polly's novel, A Theater for Dreamers, about a young woman's time on the Greek island of Hydra in the 1960s. I love Greece, and so it was it was a sort of easy decision to go to, to Greece when, when I finished my last novel and wanted some time just to sort of be with my family and be in the sunshine and swim in crystal clear water. And Idra, never been to it before, had no intention of writing about it. And then while we were there, I read this long out-of-print book by a long forgotten writer called Charmian Clift which was about her family's life on the island in the 50s and that just switched something on and I was straight into research because I I wanted people other people to read her that's really where it started I wanted to know more about the writer Charmian Clift and I googled her and the first thing that came up was a photograph which is of Leonard Cohen playing a concert under a tree in a taverna and this beautiful woman who turned out to be charming Clift with her head on his shoulder. And that's really what got me started. So love letter to Charmian Clift and a sort of then, a, you know, supplementary love letter to this man who I believe is the, you know, one of the greatest writers of our age, if not the greatest writer of our age. This is Polly Sampson reading an excerpt from Chapter 26 of A Theatre for Dreamers. Pomegranates split their sides, spill rubies to the steps. The air is musky with hot figs. I sleep every night on the terrace, curled around whoever has fallen beside me. I have burned the letter I finally received from Jimmy Jones. Back to law school he trots with his tail between his legs, a year behind his peers, and somehow that's my fault for leading him astray. My tears have been ill-spent. An American friend of Leonard's called Doc Sheldon arrives for a holiday on the island at the same time as little lumps of Lebanese hashish start to sweeten the air of our late-night courtyard gatherings. The first time I tried it, I thought I might die laughing. I was with Marianne, running, holding hands, downhill, all the way from her house to the port, crazy as schoolgirls. By the end, we couldn't break if we wanted to, and Marianne was whooping, See, it's like flying! And we had to grab hold of Marty and Leonard to stop ourselves falling. Leonard and Marianne walk hand in hand like a honeymoon couple. The rest of us can't help feeling jealous, especially since news got around that Leonard has come into an inheritance of $1,500 from his granny and has decided straight away that he'll buy a house with it. He thinks he's found the right one. Three stories and a large terrace with old lemon trees that sit solid in the saddle between the port and Camini. It has a good vibe, apparently, and he and Marianne hope little by little to do it up. The I Ching is very much in favour of this purchase. Charmian has given it her blessing too, with the promise of an ironwork flowery bed. George twists him a wry grin. Maybe now you're a property owner, you'll have to stop whining about Canadian government grants, he says, downing a brandy. 
Leonard and Marianne take trips to Piraeus and come back laden with oriental rugs, fine old linen and an antique gilded mirror wrapped in blankets that will hang in his hall. They are rich in love and rich in books which they bring tied in bundles, new records too, and a gang of us follow them from the boat and up the streaming hill through a rainstorm with their parcels and baskets strung between us. We arrive at Marianne's out of breath and soaked to the skin. She hands out towels, and while we shed our wet clothing, stays outside on the terrace and sings encouraging words to the marijuana seedlings that have started to thrive among her tomato plants. We dry off, and she pours us all wine, arranges bunches of grapes on a large copper plate. We settle around a low Turkish table. Through the shutters... The summer downpour hammers and steams and I have to resist an urge to run outside naked and dance in it. I look around at us all reclining among the cushions in our wrappings of towels. We're as gilded and gleaming as ancients at the symposium. The grapes are pale as polished jade and everyone is smiling, shining from the rain. Goran reads aloud from a book that is lying there, Cavafy's Ithaca. Lena peels him a grape. Marty pulls me close, and I settle, grateful to have this happy giant's chest for my pillow. Marianne rolls a joint, while Leonard slides the record from its sleeve, and with the care demanded of a sacrament, places it on the turntable. The loudspeaker crackles as he stoops to blow a speck of dust from the needle before lifting it to the groove. He takes the joint from Marianne and settles himself beside her on the goatskin rug. Mahalia Jackson sings gospels while Marianne curls herself around him and they lie very still. There's a day when the whole quay smells curiously of ouzo and the talk turns to departures. At the waterfront, the oak wine casks are being hosed down with salt water. A priest stands beside the wine boat sprinkling holy water and intoning prayers for its return filled with a good vintage by St Demetrius' day. Each empty barrel sports a festive bung of bay leaves that flutter farewell as the bell tolls. The circles shrink around the cafe tables. Bloody decadence, the lot of them, George says as the students start to slope away with their bedrolls and rucksacks. The grand houses are being shuttered, easels disappear from the streets, Maria's tourist shop opens only one hour each day and sometimes the ferry brings nobody at all. The painted wooden kaikis outnumber the yachts in the harbour. The port returns to the business of caulking hulls and mending nets. The quay is piled with netted mountains of sponges from Benghazi, and though the crop is meagre, not a soul has been lost. The cannons have been fired from the roofs of the captain's houses, and from the workshops comes the sound of men working on engines, the fresh resinous smell of newly planed planking. The mountains sigh with relief and birds gather on the wires of the awnings to sing of Africa. There are tearful farewells. I cry me several rivers when Bobby leaves with Trudy, but Charmian mops me up at her table, reminds me of the unhappy boy he had been when he arrived. I hang on her words. Perhaps by taking such good care of Trudy, she says, Bobby has managed to put the ghost of his failure to nurse our mother to rest. George is in a despicable mood, no surprises there. He has been for days. He sits coughing and belly aching in his own smoky cloud of brandy and funk. 
Didi is attempting to chivy him while at the same time deal with the kids, his three as well as her younger two, all talking at once and slurping on strawberry milkshakes. Leonard and Marianne share a dish of tiny prawns. Marianne doesn't mind the cats snaking around her legs, not even the manky one-eyed ginger who jumps on her lap. The intense adoration is making Leonard sneeze, so he moves away a little and wipes his fingers before opening his newspaper. Today's ferry has delivered to Bim a fresh rejection letter, this for the third draft of his novel. Look at this, he says, licking his finger and rubbing the signature. They couldn't even be bothered to sign it. It's printed on. Leonard looks up, but only briefly. Something in the Herald Tribune is making him frown. He's scribbling some words in his notebook. Marianne picks up Bim's cup and turns it three times on a saucer. She tells him she sees a dollar sign in his coffee grounds, and Robin sighs and agrees to send off for a new supply of paper and carbons so he can have another stab at it. Bim's bloodshot eyes betray the decaying spirit behind his handsome brow. He makes a perfect victim for George, who shifts over to have a pick while he's still fresh from the blow of the publisher's rejection. Look, I don't mean to be some old bastard Kronos here, but take it from me, mate. Sitting around on this rock and drinking too much does little for the syntax and only blunts the wits. Maybe it's time you asked yourself what it is you have to say that's so bloody important. Bim tries to defend himself, but George talks over him and ends with theatrical despair, motioning to his children who are attempting to get the cats to fight for sardine tails. With these three and a voracious wife to provide for, I'm no longer free, but civilization is going to hell in a handcart, and you young writers need to get your hands dirty and tell the world about it. Go to Cuba, Korea, Hungary, Ethiopia... You know, I covered over 60 countries before getting myself manacled to this rock. What's the bloody matter with your generation? We're being brought to the brink of atomic annihilation, and all you want to do is moon about sucking on lotus. Why are you not more angry? Leonard looks up, startled. There are lots of things that anger me, he says, tapping out a cigarette and narrowing his eyes at George as he lights it. But let us not destroy ourselves with hostility. Let us not become paranoid. If there are things to fight against, let's do it in health and insanity. I don't want to become a mad poet. I want to become a healthy man who can face the things that are around me. He smiles at Marianne before returning to whatever has been preoccupying him in the newspaper. Eichmann's thin, surprisingly ordinary face stares back at him from the page. For the song written in response. Yes, since about 1993, I think, we started writing things together, collaborating. Of course, it's, it's steeped in Greece and it's steeped in uh, Leonard's style of playing to some extent. I mean, I hesitate to say that I stole anything from him, but I mean, you know, there's a, there are little flavours in there that just um, when you think of Greece and when you think of Hydra and the whole uh, life that went on there, it's bound to rub off on you. 
it's such a treat to be able to just quietly sit at home and go through these things together and bounce ideas and, and have Polly give me pieces of uh, lyrics on paper for me to practice singing and then say, can we adjust this and do this and that? Um, it's all for all these years since then, it's been an absolute joy. I, I cannot tell you how much um, I appreciate what we have done together and, and what she has done for me. When you're dealing with a group of people who many of them wrote and they all left behind you know, published novels, unpublished novels, songs, poems, letters, you know, they have masses of, of, of things in the archives. I don't think it's possible to do that just in working hours. So this is all I did and therefore all we did <laughs> for the years that it took to research this book. And actually, I was just so lucky because, you know, David was as interested in the subject matter and the island and that whole bohemian community as I was. It's all I could think, talk, dream, you know, it was every minute. It was so consuming. It was also a huge advantage that, you know, that the sort of, that the king and queen of that bohemian community were a married writing couple, George Johnston and Charmian Clift. And um, a lot, you know, much of the novel and indeed much of their lives was concerned with, you know, who was helping the other, who was being the muse for the other and why. And so having had this long history of collaborating with David, it gave me an insight in, into their relationship. And it actually made me feel so grateful that I live in a time when there is, I mean, there's not perfect equality, um, but it's a lot, there's a lot more than there was in, in their day. And David and I have all always helped each other and when David's making an album you know he's I mean he wouldn't he's not mentally present for the children and certainly when I'm writing a book I'm not meant to, so someone has to be so we've always taken it in turns I mean these lovely uh, search engines that one goes on to when one is doing looking into these things they lead you down all these strange little alleys and and what what polly might the alleys that polly might go down while she's researching hers and the, the ones that i might find i might just follow a different path um so both of us looking for stuff to do with all this uh, story and about the lives of, of george johnston and charmy and clift we just you know pulled together all the stuff that we found in all the different alleyways we yeah. slipped down. As well as research, David also recorded the audiobook of A Theatre for Dreamers and composed brand new music to act as a sort of soundtrack. Each of those songs is included in this episode. I just listened to the book as the audiobook progressed and tried to find little bits at the end of chapters mostly that would inspire something that would move from the end of one chapter and on into the other one. There's one place where Charmin is thinking about the stars and eternity and a little thing just, you know, these things happen in a very strange way. They just pop into your head. 
Years ago, I had a, um, a short story that had lots of musical sort of things in it. And I remember for my birthday, David sort of, you know, kept disappearing to the studio and, and in fact had recorded all the sort of, had recorded both himself reading the story and had put in all the musical interludes. And I remember even back then you used to say you, you, you just couldn't understand why audiobooks were, you know, why they didn't have music included. It just always seems odd to me that an audiobook, you know, you're, you're trying to, you're, you're finding things that heighten the emotions and the tensions and everything that is going on within the book. And, and that works so well in films, you know, it, and filmmakers rely on it. And I have never been able to understand why more of that isn't done. This novel is um, written from the point of view of a character called Erica, who's 18 years old. So a lot of the time, I walk around as this character, trying to see everything through her eyes. And we were in the cemetery, and I was having this sort of, you know, I suppose it's a sort of playthrough of what I'm going to write. And I had Erica turn to Charmian and say, do you believe in ghosts? And it was a voice in my ear that said, yes, I have ghosts, not all of them dead. And it just made the hairs prickle on the back of my neck. This is Polly Sampson, reading an excerpt from Chapter 16. I tell her how I long for my mother to come back and haunt me. I suppose that everyone feels like that when they miss somebody, I say, and wipe my eyes with the back of my wrist. Do you feel ghosts, Charmian? Oh, yes, she replies, and she sighs long and hard. I have ghosts, not all of them dead. All of us have these hauntings by people who are not dead. And certainly in my case, I mean, I can identify a couple of things that have happened in my life where there have been these rifts. And it's those rifts that where you haven't really wanted someone to disappear and they have. And I certainly think that that happens, you know, when, when, they're, when you've had your heart broken and a relationship has ended. It's the same sort of thing. And in Charmian Clift's case, she had, um, she, you know, she had a child um, when she was um, 19 out of wedlock. And in those days, you know, she was a she didn't come from a family that could support a child. Um, that the father of the child wasn't, you know, wasn't going to accept responsibility. And this sort of wonderful and maternal woman had to give away the baby. And it was something that she never talked about. So when Charmian in the book says that to Erica, that's really what's in her mind is how haunted she was by this child who she gave away, who happened to be the same age as Erica, who she's talking to at that point. She's also haunted by the man that she marries because although he's still there, the George that she married, who was a, you know, an amazing um, war reporter, sort of 
incredible sort of hero, most read war reporter in, in Australia of their time. And he had become a drunk on Hydra and sort of, you know, aggressive to her and, you know, and not, not the greatest of husbands. And so her point was also that, you know, you, you, you just can miss someone and they can be there right beside you and yet they're not them and they just remind you of the person that you miss so it's got many sort of meanings and that's what I loved about it and that's what made it so sort of ripe for a song was that I just immediately thought everyone's got this everyone is haunted by someone and they're not dead as I wrote it in the part of the novel I was writing, I simultaneously wrote it on a post-it note and I knew that my sort of reward for finishing the novel was going to be, and the next thing I would do was write that lyric. And I can remember telling David, I've got this line and I can't wait to write this lyric. I'm finding that my lower register singing-wise suits me better these days. You know, I'm, I'm not the young nightingale I was once. So you have to you have to play to your strengths. And um, and, and as you mentioned, the three-four thing, I'm, I would say as many of the songs that I have written over the years are in three-four as, as Leonard's were. I'm. I'm there's something about the three-four time signature that uh, appeals to my heart. The song is not only a collaboration between David and Polly, but also with their daughter, Romani. We went into lockdown and we hadn't nailed it yet. Um, and so we begged Romani to come in and have a go at it. And it again was just her voice and mine do seem to merge beautifully together. It makes such a difference. It has gives it such a lift that um, I decided to get her to, to play on it. And we got recorded the beautiful harp. Actually, the harp on it was recorded in this room on a day much more windy than today. I don't know if you've heard any of the wind, but uh, this barn rattles and, and, and the, the actual, when you solo the sound of the harp on that track, it's awful. <coughs> I, I have got to do it again, get her to do it again before it comes out on some album at some point or another. Romney is a massive Leonard Cohen fan, it is true, but she's had very little choice in that because for the last four years, the only thing that we've heard in, in this house is Leonard Cohen and Yes, I Have Ghosts. This is Yes, I Have Ghosts by David Gilmore with Romany Gilmore. The heat of the sun stayed on through the night Made specters of strangers playing games with my sight. I passed through the station, a face in the crowd. The whistle was blowing, the barrier came down. There was my baby and another's embrace. I called out her name in shame and disgrace. Yes, I have. Teeth 
That was Yes, I Have Ghosts, performed by David Gilmour with Romany Gilmour. Lyrics by Polly Sampson and music by David Gilmour. A Theater for Dreamers is copyrighted in 2020 by Polly Sampson, and the moral right of the author has been asserted. A Theater for Dreamers is available as a hardcover or as an audiobook from Algonquin. Special thanks to Stephanie Mendoza and all at Algonquin for helping put this together. I also wrote a song in response to a theater for dreamers. It's called The Beauty, The Sound, and you can hear it wherever music streams. The next episode of Songwriter features a short story from George Saunders and a brand new song written in response by Amanda Shires. If you want to hear it, please subscribe. And why not rate and review as well? One last note. I'm happy to say that Songwriter is now offering a premium subscription via Apple Podcasts. If, while listening to the show, you've ever thought to yourself, how does this guy make any money without running ads? The answer is, I don't. This is a passion project that I do because I like doing it. 
If you like it too, and you want to help me make the show, please consider subscribing. As you'll hear in the first installment of Premium Subscribers episodes, I hope to start a conversation about what the subscription means and how I can best give back to the people who support the show. Thank you. Songwriter is distributed by the American Songwriter Podcast Network, and you can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.